Welcome, welcome, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and downloading another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook, and today we have uh, an exciting episode. I'm going to be joined by both Bill Venezia and Frank McGady, my typical co-host from Hudson Catholic High School in Jersey City. And we're also going to be welcoming in an outside guest, an old friend of mine from college, uh, Leo Vaccaro, will be joining us. Leo is a history teacher at St. Joe's Prep down in Philadelphia. So we're kind of seeing how many Catholic school educators we can gather together to have one historical discussion here. But Leo is going to be talking to us both about his work as a history teacher, some of his interests. Uh, we do go back to being uh, floor mates on our freshman year at Gettysburg College. So we have a lot of Civil War connection that we'll be talking about a little bit. But specifically, Leo is going to be joining us to talk about his involvement with a uh, citizens organization project in Philadelphia, where they are trying to change the name of a street in that city. There is a street in Philadelphia named for the former chief justice of the Supreme Court in the 1830s to 1860s, a man named Roger Tawney. Roger Tawney was appointed to the Supreme Court by Andrew Jackson. He was the first Catholic, ashamedly so for all of us Catholic educators, who are going to be on this chat, to ever serve on the Supreme Court. Um, but he is most notorious for his involvement in as a leading, uh, for his leading role in the Supreme Court case involving Dred Scott, where he wrote the opinion of the court. He tried to sway the court to be unanimous, which it wound up not being, in its ruling against Dred Scott in upholding the legality of slavery. So Dredd's, uh, Roger Tawdy has a very problematic role in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court. There are other issues also uh, in his career that are problematic. And so Leo's going to be joining us to talk about why they're trying to change this street name in Philadelphia and also how they're going about this and what the future might hold for changing this name. And we'll talk more broadly about historical memory of Tawny and other historical figures of that time period. So stick around. I will be right back after this ad, and I'll be joined by Bill Venezia, Frank McGady, and Leo Vaccaro. Stick around, everybody. We are back here on Wigs for Wigs, and I'm joined by Bill Venezia, Frank McGady, both from Hudson Catholic, and by Leo Vaccaro from St. Joe's Prep down in Philly. We're seeing how many Catholic educators we can gather together to try to remove the name of a prominent Catholic from a street in Philadelphia. So, uh, Leo, welcome. Your first time here on Wigs for Wigs. Could you tell us a little bit about... Uh, What's going on with Roger Tawney, with Tawney Street down there in Philadelphia, and why we're trying to change this name? Yeah, thank you so much for uh, having me on. So I, t I actually live right next to uh, Tawney Street, and here in Philadelphia, we have a very funny accent. So absolutely everyone in Philadelphia calls it Taney Street. <laughs> And um, one day we were knocking on doors. So we've we've had a long process now of knocking on every door on the street. And one of the times that I did that, I was actually joined by a member of the Tawny family, Joy Tawny, who lives in West Philadelphia. 
who showed up and said, yeah, yeah, Philadelphians can call the street whatever they want, but just make sure that you call me Tawny, uh, because that is actually that is actually my family's name. Um, and they're all for changing the street name. They do not want the street to be named after their ancestor anymore. And um, it was actually really interesting to see that Joy talking to people on the street and saying like, oh yeah, this is actually my family that it's named for and we do not want it named this anymore because it's such a terrible name to have it's such a terrible <laughs> connection to have and um another thing that there's one thing i did want to say since this is a history podcast in particular and i've it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because there have been a number of newspaper and uh news hits about this story that have started off with oh the street is allegedly named or no one can say for sure but the street seems to be named after roger tawny and last year i went to a few different archives in philadelphia i went to the city archive i pulled out all of the records for city council at uh the free library of philadelphia which was incredibly helpful by the way the librarian there just knew where absolutely everything was from 1858, all of the 1858 files of Philadelphia. And um, I went to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and there's the the burden of proof to say that it's not named after Roger Taney is so outrageously high because what happened in the 1850s is that Philadelphia consolidated uh, like a lot of other cities right, in the 19th yeah. century. And it was a long, messy process, and they renamed about, I tried to count it, and as far as I could tell, they renamed 971 streets in Philadelphia in one ordinance in 1858. And I looked at the names in those, of those um, streets, and some of them were super obvious, but a lot of them were just named after political people of that generation, of that era. and. Right. So who no. else could Tawny be? But no, Roger there's, exactly. So then I went I went and tried to find anyone with that name who was even living in Philadelphia in 1858. I tried to find anyone that, it, you know, that could be a contender for it not being Roger Tawny. But if you look at the newspapers in 1858, which I did, you look at what I looked at everyone who signed the ordinance and I tried to figure out, well, were they supporters of Roger Tawny? And they were. It, as it turned out, there were a lot of people who wanted to take Roger Tawney's perspective on the Civil War and Roger Tawney's reading of citizenship. And it's terrible. And that's the reality that we lived in. So even though since they changed 971 street names, I understand that there wasn't a celebration for every one of them, but it is so very, very obvious. And it's a job of a historian. <laughs> I really do think a historian can prove that, yes, it is named after Roger Tawney, even though you will never find like a parade that they had that day celebrating that it was Roger Tawney because they only had 365 days in a year and they they changed 971 street names. So anyway, I'm sorry. I just wanted to get that off my chest quickly. <laughs> in this, this is a history. I appreciate that. I'm sure you brought up, I'm wearing a Civil War Institute shirt where Leo and I worked together in college for Dr. Gabor Borit, and I'm sure he would be very appreciative of you working harder 
to find all that information. Yeah, looking all the way through it. But anyway, I guess the other thing I wanted to say is um, that I think people forget how big of a deal the Dred Scott decision actually turned out to be. You know, I I don't think it necessarily was a um, immediate. I know there's speculation that it wasn't an immediate realization, but once Lincoln started pushing the envelope and explaining to voters <clears throat> the implications that their the country can't remain half slave and half free because uh, slaveholders could just bring their laborers anywhere and no one right. could effectively do anything about it and there was no due process and Philadelphia had a huge successful powerful important african-american population that built the first hbcu which is now cheney university and had some powerful churches uh, with some of the first uh like black ministers pe people were actually ordained in the country and that's all the uh, an obvious problem to everybody in 1857 after the decision and then the name the street after 1858 the lincoln douglas debates people were reading in the newspaper so um it, it people i i wish that people had a better understanding that it wasn't just some old white dead guy that said something bad that it right. was actually like a literal crisis that caused the civil war <laughs> and that then a whole generation of americans sacrificed in order to change and a whole generation of Americans uh, went out there and died and fought to get the 14th Amendment to overturn the Dred Scott decision. Uh, yeah, I think we should, I, I, I know it's facetious, but I think we should point that out, that the Dred Scott decision is not any longer the law of the land in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Mike, Huckabee, Mike Huckabee in 2016 said, many people don't realize that the Dred Scott decision is still the law of the land in oh, the no. US. Well, did the did the Emancipation Proclamation uh, that was January first, eighteen sixty three? Did that effectively end the Dred Scott decision? Not quite. No, no I don't. Th I don't think so because um, it's a citizenship problem too. It's not just a because what he says, the Fifteenth Amendment would have solved that, right? Wouldn't the Fifteenth Amendment have solved that? I. Uh, if the 15th, 14th, and 15th. Yeah. 14th. Well, what's uh, 14th was the one with citizenship, 15th yes. was that's 14th Amendment, yeah. Regardless of any prior status of servitude, I'm trying to remember the exact wording of the 14th Amendment, but um, anybody born in the United States is a citizen of the United States. So, um, Frank, could you? I'm just going to throw it to you for a moment here, Frank, as a fellow history teacher like me and Leo. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the significance of the Dred Scott decision? Um, I've actually had the uh, distinction of actually visiting his home. He obviously wasn't home, um, but I did take a tour and it's amazing how, you know, it's just like when I went to James Buchanan's house in Lancaster, how they, the tour guys kind of twisted themselves to <laughs> kind of, um, Elevate Make them their, seem better people. Yeah, you know, well, uh, Buchanan really wasn't a bad president. He did, and then they, you know, Tony. You know, a lot of people misunderstand him, and I'm like, I remember being with my wife, and I'm like, uh, didn't want to say anything in front of the tour guys, but after <laughs> I said, no, I don't think we're misunderstanding him at all. <laughs> um, 
but and I even got an email once from because uh, I signed my name and I had written something an email from a relative saying that you know um, oh you know his reputation has been um, besmirched and so on. Um, but I did notice that his statue that used to be in front of the um, state house in Annapolis, Maryland, is now gone. So the people of Maryland realized that um, we do not want to commemorate um, Roger Twenty. So hopefully, and the U.S. Co the Capitol also just removed a bike. Yeah, yeah. that started in two twenty. Uh, unfortunately, wasn't affected until two twenty two. I mean, it's in the, the former uh, Supreme Court offices, you know. And, you know, it should be relegated to museum status, you know, but. Yeah, it's hard to when you have something like, you know, they, if they're going to do something on all the Supreme Court justices, you know, it's. Um, you no, know, I mean, they could do something like they did at West Point with um, Benedict Arnold and just have a plaque with no name on it, just his rank. But uh, <laughs> that would be, you know, Chief Justice and then leave it blank. But um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it, Tony actually um, had also the distinction of. Um, swearing in Abraham Lincoln, right? For his first inauguration. Not the second one. Was he dead by then? No, he was dead by the second one. Yeah, Solomon Chase had taken over one. by the second one. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it did have a major significance. Um, I know Buchanan tried to um, get it to be passed uh, <laughs> by kind of twisting a few, I think, one arm. He really uh, wanted to make it unanimous, and two yeah. judges still wrote dissents, yeah, Judge Curtis times. and Judge... Um, Drawing a blank on the other one's name, but yeah. <laughs> now, did they resign? I thought they resigned, even too. Is that correct? Uh, I I believe that they were so. There were at least one, if not two, members of the court were so annoyed by the dictum in the decision um, that they they actually removed themselves. Oh, and, I didn't know that. That's actually. <clears throat> I like to hear that. Yeah. Amazing that. Um, yes, you're right. Judge Curtis resigned. Um, yes, I do remember that. Yep, yep. I can't remember the other one's name, but I know his name. And he resigned from the court. As a result, he was so disgusted. So, yeah. So, tell us a little bit about the neighborhood where Tawny Street is, and just a little bit about uh, the actions that you know your citizens' organization is taking, and where this project stands of trying to get that name off of the street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also a little bit about Carolyn LeCount, who you had. A yeah, definitely. I'd love to. Um, so there's been talk for a while now about removing the name Tawny, and it's a relatively small street that runs um, parallel to the numbered streets in Philadelphia, and it appears and disappears in different neighborhoods. So it actually goes across three different council districts in Philadelphia and Philadelphia politically is organized uh, in sort of an old fashioned way that there's 17 different council people. And that sort of means that there's kind of 17 different mayors in Philadelphia. <laughs> and um, so the, the, real, the, the conclusion to all of this, and I'll tell you some details about what it's looked like is that city council has the complete and total authority to change the street name because the street doesn't even go outside of the city of Philadelphia. And so if it, if it went somewhere else in Pennsylvania, then it could be something that, that Harrisburg would be interested right. or yeah. not interested in taking up. But uh, so city council is the group that tomorrow could just write a bill if they wanted to, and it would be a one-line bill, and that would 
change everything. So, uh, so that's the group that we've mostly been lobbying, and we worked with um, closely with one of those council members who gave us a process of what he wanted us to do in order to prove that the residents actually do want the street name changed. And so we have knocked on doors on the street multiple times. And I just want to, as a little caveat, there are really only a handful of people that have said that they don't want the street name changed. And I, I mean, we're talking like less than five people, as far as I remember and re can recall, on the actual street itself. And um, then out of like the various surveys that we've had back we've been seeing consistently around 90 percent of people saying like we actually do want it changed so in my estimation that's not even just a majority it, it doesn't there's not really any organized there's definitely no organized resistance and there's really not any resistance to it being changed except for a very small minority of voices and some of them have sent us letters saying like I'm thinking one letter in particular that said, I, I don't even know what the history is. I don't even care what the history is. So, I mean, that's that's kind of like the level that the debate, there's there's really not people showing up and rallying support for Roger Tawney because it's just so odious. Um, and that that's where we're at in terms of what people think. Now, uh, it's hard to convince politicians obviously to do something that when they don't have to do anything you know and uh it's hard to convince people to make the change uh when it's not a bread and butter issue or something like that so we've had a lot of different events and a lot of different community engagement we've reached out to um every community organization that deals with the neighborhood through which Taney Street runs. And we're talking about multiple neighborhoods here. So we have endorsement letters uh, from all those groups. You can go onto our website, renamed Taney, and see all of the letters of support, see all the different campaigns that we've had, see all the different op-eds, see all the times that we've had earned media reports. So it's really been like a long, robust program with a team full of people. And I need to be conscious that you know, I'm a white Catholic school teacher guy. And so I'm not the only person on this project. You know, it's a right. different coalition. It's a, it really is a diverse group of people. And um, yeah, so that, that's basically where we are with the campaign. So you, you guys had this poll to choose who you would want to rename the street for. Uh, mm -hmm. There are a number of prominent Philadelphians in the poll. I actually went and voted on it. I voted for Octavius Cato. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Uh, but That's it's actually his fiance, Carolyn LeCount, who won the poll. So tell us a little bit about her. Yeah. So um, this is, I think, a really exciting turning point for the project that happened about a year ago. Um, eventually, we, well, eventually, I got really sick of trying to talk about how terrible Roger Tawney really was to everybody. And so it was uh, nice to be able to talk about somebody that actually is worthy of being honored. And that would be Carolyn LeCount. Carolyn LeCount was born near where, if you're familiar with Philadelphia, she was born at Ninth and Rodman, which is near where there's a big Whole, Food these, Whole Foods these days on South Street. And um, 
she was born in a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American at the time. And her father was a cabinet maker, as well as uh, having family connections to undertakers for African-Americans. And the story is that her father actually would hide runaway African-American enslaved laborers in coffins and uh, actually help bring them into the North. And she turned out to be a very smart, very good student. She went to the Institute for Colored Youth and graduated in 1863. And that was a really rigorous, humanistic program of study with a um, public oral exam, the results of which would be published in the newspaper. And so she's learning ancient Greek. We should Greek do that with our students. It's it's incredible. It's incredible. You can look up the tests online too, or you can even go to the microfilm if you want to do and see what the exams looked like. And she uh, ended up being an educator. She was first a teacher and then a principal for decades. But she did fall in love with Octavius Caddo and was engaged to be married to him. He was assassinated in 1871 on election day, which in Philadelphia in those days used to be in October. Mm -hmm. And she never remarried, but she's most famous because in March of 1867, she, just so I have a streetcar behind me in my, I guess I can't see it if you listen to the podcast. Yes, but you can look up you can't see, but he does have an old yeah. streetcar behind him. That's, on his that's my background here. But um, there had been a long campaign with uh, Octavius Caddo, with Carolyn LeCount, with this other guy, William Still, who's the father of the Underground Railroad. Yes, very important in the Underground Railroad. I was going to bring him up. And later. a historian, too. He, he actually <laughs> tracked uh, everybody who escaped. Uh, enslavement through Philadelphia and his notebooks. I've been able to see those notebooks. They're absolutely incredible piece of cultural historical heritage that we have here. And uh, they had been lobbying for years that the streetcar system, the public transit uh, precursor to the trolley system should be integrated. And there were real wartime reasons it should be mentioned that once African-Americans en enlisted in the army, which Pennsylvania's governor, Andrew Curtin, dragged his feet a little bit to make that happen. But once it happened, there was a big training camp that was set up on the northern border of the city in, in uh, Lamont, Pennsylvania, or Cheltenham, Pennsylvania. And um, there, therefore, there was a lot of traveling back and forth between where most people lived in what we would now maybe call Old City or Center City, uh, up to that location. And if any white person got onto that streetcar and you were Carolyn LeCount, a black woman, or Octavius Caddo, a black man, or William Still, a black businessman, even dealing with that camp, you were going to have to get off and then walk the rest of the distance. It wasn't quite, it, you know, we call our Philadelphia's Rosa Parks, but I think the, the actual details are interesting too. They're that, a little bit different, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, it's 90 years before what Rosa yeah. Parks. But the other comparison between her and Rosa Parks is that she wasn't a random person, you know, uh, she was not like we remember who they are, but we partly remember it because it was part of a larger organized effort uh, involving a coalition of people to try to affect this change. And that's true with LeCount. That's true with Rosa Parks. LeCount 
eventually the law does get changed and um, the streetcar companies don't want the law to be changed, but Harrisburg changes the law. And this is a re a great reconstruction yeah. story. You know, we often don't think of reconstruction happening in the North, but this is, uh, these are reconstruction civil rights movements in the North. Right. And um, they, I mean, again, mentioning Octavius Cato, he's killed in the first election after the 15th amendment. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. It's it's another it's an example of what actually happened up here, even though um, obviously a lot was happening in the South, too, with Reconstruction. But uh, LeCount actually asks to get on to the streetcar. The streetcar does not stop. And she uh, forces uh, the police to actually fine the uh, conductor or whatever you would call him of it, goes to court and personally integrates the streetcar system. So that's what makes her Philadelphia's Rosa Parks is that she actually gets the courts involved and she actually physically puts herself out there. There had been people, by the way, there who had been beat up trying to do the same thing. And uh, there, it came at a great personal risk to do what she actually did. Um, you know, gentlemen, it, it's kind of ironic that, uh, that Taney, uh, Tony was uh, a state's right person, which you could equate to local control. Uh, and it seems like more or less a local control issue where the, the will of the majority, you know, wants the name change. It's, it's ironic that, you know, the wheels of government grind so slowly. You know, yeah. I read somewhere, um, I think it was, I looked at a website, uh, Billy Penn, and they said, this has been going on since 2017, you know, uh, and it's amazing how long it's it's taken to to basically get his name off a, off a street sign seems like a, a simple task, you know. And I'm sure this. I looked at the list of people who uh, were, were nominated to replace the name because I read that one of the councilmen, I think it was Johnson, had, had wanted uh, to know who we're going to name it after. And obviously, you know, the steps have been taken to uh, pick someone local. I mean, some of these are national figures too. I mean, I initially thought that okay. If you, you picked Dred Scott, it would be a thumb in the eye, you know, <laughs> you know, to to that. But it makes so much sense that the way you're explaining, you know, the legacy of Carolyn McCount, you know. And I, I never heard about Octavius Cato, so it's it's interesting to see. I teach about him in my sports history class because he also is the captain of the first black baseball team in okay. Philadelphia, the Pythians. Um, so I, I tie that in in my sports history class, Octavius Cato story. You know, Leo, have you gotten any pushback from uh, your employers, you know, as a fellow Catholic school educator? Um, you know, I not really. I, I haven't really talked about it too much in school. The one thing I have talked about in school recently was um, I had my students read an article about Octavius Caddo, and I had them read a little bit of a primary source from a speech that Carolyn LeCount gave or from a statement that she made. and the one thing that I am really proud of that we did with this program is that Carolyn LeCount died 100 years ago this January. So um, I went out to the cemetery in Eden Cemetery, which if you are in Philadelphia and you're interested in Black history, it's a place that you need to go to. It's incredible, all the people that are buried there. And um they, in, in 2007, they got Octavius Caddo, really beautiful monument to mark where he's buried. But as of right now, there's no marker for Carolyn LeCount. 
So starting in September, we fundraised for a marker for Carolyn LeCount. Wow. And uh, we just had a celebration last Saturday where we invited the donors and she has no direct descendants, but we invited anybody I could find on Ancestry.com that would be related to her. Uh, and uh, we had different civic groups come and the news actually covered it really briefly that we did actually uh, secure the funding for a tombstone for her and we are going to mark her grave out oh, there. Excellent. So, you know, it's I that is one thing that I have talked about at school just to say, you know, that there there are these opportunities out there uh, to learn more about the rich history in Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, I don't really see this as a controversial thing, to be honest, you know, because like it's I know that there's this narrative that there's like a, a, I hate to say it, but the narrative is, let's say the elephant of the room, that there's like a woke mob of leftists <laughs> that are trying to like rewrite, rewrite American history or something. Um, but that's not at all what's going on in the story. You've got the majority of people in Philadelphia actually want it to be changed. <laughs> the majority of Philadelphians hated Roger Tawney within a couple years of the street being named Ooh. after him. <laughs> and then uh, consistently afterwards, either didn't even realize why it's named that way or didn't you know think about it. But we're not seeing really any opposition it's not like a community you know it it's not the sticky situation where you might be somewhere in the south or something like that where there's like a, a confederate soldier and and there's yeah. an actual sizable amount of people it's not at all analogous to that so it is frustrating that it's not changed yet because there's nothing going against us at this point and i sh i mean obviously the the problem with the confederate monuments of course too is that if you look closely that's also what's happening in a lot of these areas like a lot of these areas it's the local community saying actually we don't want that statue right i'm, I'm thinking specifically about forest park in memphis tennessee yeah in the middle of an entirely african-american neighborhood and they yeah. wanted to change the name <laughs> Now, if I read Bedford Forest, the leader of the park, KKK, the park, I think he was actually in the park, wasn't he? Is he buried there? He was. Oh, uh, okay. And they 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 moved him. him. They moved him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I believe Tennessee has a law that the state legislature—I could be wrong which state it is—but I think it's Tennessee that the state legislature even took the power away from local municipalities for making decisions like that. Which, mm -hmm. to your point, like that's that's the antithesis of democracy in my viewpoint. I, just, it is. I, I don't understand how you can believe in democracy and not think that you can choose who you want to honor in your own community, you know, just because, <laughs> just because it, they did it in 1858 when they changed all those other street names doesn't mean we have to live like this forever. You know, we can choose to honor someone that actually changed our country and made a difference and somebody we want to live up to we don't need to just keep our heads down and be like oh i guess a bunch of dead oh people that's that yeah. yeah yeah leo the problem that the problem is is that people who want to ban books have never read many <laughs> yeah <laughs> you yeah. know unfortunately let me let me throw this general question out to all three of you um because it's something i talk about in my class i'm sure in a little to an extent you do also leo and frank why does it matter who we honor with things like street names and statues? Like, does that matter? I'm, 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 
just fine play devil's advocate and just see what you all think. Like, why does it matter that the name Tani is on this street? Uh, why does it matter that a statue of somebody is somewhere? I think it does. I don't know who wants to go first on that, but Frank. Oh, all right. Whoever wants to go first. Yeah, Frank, go ahead. Oh, okay. I think it does matter because it shows you as a society who we revere. Um, if we honor someone who is not really, um, you know, who's done things that are really not so good, that means that we kind of find them to be acceptable. Um, you know, one of the arguments I always bring up is when I hear this, I get people who will argue with me, you know, the old, the old excuse that we're trying to erase history, which I always thought was kind of ludicrous. Um, <clears throat> you know, yeah, Roger Tony won't that, exist anymore if we remove his name from the street, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, like my argument is, is there's no statues to Hitler, but we certainly know about him. So the idea that we're taking down statues is not, um, or taking names off streets is not erasing history at all. History is not street names. It's not statues. Um, history, of course, is in what actually happened, the artifacts, books, you know, things that, you know, we, we um, associate with history, not statues and so on, unless statues themselves become history, you know, like ancient Egypt or, you know, Statue of Liberty and things like that, but statues themselves. So I, I've never been a big fan of the argument that removing Robert E. Lee from all these statues is erasing history. Um, in fact, I think it's quite contrary that we should. I always found it strange that we had more statues of Robert Lee than Ulysses S. Grant, who actually won the war. But um, it's it's to me, it's I think it's important that we honor people who deserve to be honored. Well, you know, I, you know to piggyback on what Frank said, I think it's about values and, and what you stand for. Um, I asked that question to Leo and I wasn't digging, you know, I, I know that we at Hudson Catholic, you know, we at times of try to avoid politics. Uh, I think our employees would want us to do that. But there's an intersection between history and politics. And unfortunately, it does arise. But the way, Leo, you seem to be handling this is to provide education for let, letting kids make their own decisions. And I think that that's extremely important. You know, it runs, it's an anathema, I guess, in Florida. You're lucky you're in Philadelphia. You know, uh, what's we're all lucky we're not in Florida. Yes, <laughs> God, that, that is the truth. You know, it's a nice place to visit, visit occasionally, but God, I would never want to live there, nor be an educator there, you know. But uh, so I, I think it does talk a lot about the people who live there and the values that they espouse. And I, I think that's why it's important. And uh, you know what? That Tony's bust is now out of the Capitol and uh, in the back offices somewhere in the old uh, Supreme Court building is fine. He is a piece of history. And you know, if you don't study history, you're, you're doomed to repeat it. And it's, it's kind of sad. But I do find this, this movement to classify this as a woke uh, <laughs> effort is like, you know, completely flies in the face of what, you, what we do in schools, what we do as educators. Yeah. I mean, I teach a lot about racist history. I don't think anybody who knows me would classify me as a woke liberal. Uh, no, so. no. But Leo, you were just about to talk. Oh yeah, just I one one thing that, and um, this is also building, I think, a bit off what Frank said too, is that I've been I've been lucky to go to Germany a number of times, and we actually have an exchange program 
with a German school. So I'm at an all boys school and there's only a few all boys schools left in all of Europe, by the way, or at least all of West Western Europe. And um, there's, I believe only three all boys schools in Germany in the whole country. And we have an exchange program with one of them. And it's been a great program where their students come over here for a couple of weeks and go to class. And then we take students over there for a couple of weeks. And I've chaperoned a number of those trips and I love doing those trips. And part of the reason why I love doing it is because I'm a nerd and I get to go to all the battlefields and I get to go to all the museums and we take the students with us. And in my opinion, the Germans have figured out this problem, at least to an extent. I know there's a lot of nuance here, but when you go to a center that has to do with the Holocaust or has to do with the Nazi rule, then it's not called a museum, but typically. It's typically a documentation center. And uh, the idea, they're, they're very deliberate about this. And I think that they're onto something, which is, <clears throat> in general, I'm speaking generally here, but that you don't go to those places to honor the artifacts from those people like you might do in a museum. You know, a museum implies that you're going to go see a bunch of stuff like swords and uniforms, maybe, or paintings, and then there's going to be something to honor about those artifacts. And they don't give that pedestal to the Nazis at all, but they want you to know what actually happened. And so they still want these documentation centers for you to go to to see that. And then to Frank's point, of course, that's a big part of their history in the 20th century. You don't, there's no Adolf Hitler Boulevard. You know, there's no, there's ab absolutely no way that anyone would, could imagine making the argument, oh, well, that's our history and it's just going to erase our history if you don't rename that street. You know, they, those guys were, obviously gangsters that named all of these things after themselves. And then overnight, none of it was named after them anymore. And the whole society figured out a way that I really think is commendable and we could learn something from as Americans. Imagine learning something from another country that you would say, you know, that's actually a way to deal with this. That's a way to make sure that your youth still knows about the history and that the society can still talk about what happened, but without actually honoring these people. And um, I think that's w a direction we could really go in. And I, I think that is what's kind of happening in this country. I, I wish that there was a better understanding of uh, that in general. Yeah, I was actually in, a, um, in Berlin and I was in the, the National History Museum. And there, of course, it's, you know, begins. it was a national history, it had everything from like Charlemagne you know, onward, it seems. Um, and they do have a, a room, you know, with nationalist socialism. They had brown shirt uniforms and it was a, an 88 millimeter gun that had, you could see it had been hit with a shell on the side of the barrel. But, um, but then, of course, that was at Broad, the nationalist, you know, the national museum. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I've been to a couple of the uh, concentration camps and there's, believe me, there's nothing there. To, you know, that's another argument they bring up. Oh, so you want to race this? So maybe... We should, you know, we, we have constant, you know, we still have memorials at the concentration camps. So what's wrong with the Confederate statues? I said, yes, but there's no statues to him or Hitler in the concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And nobody's, nobody's having their weddings at Auschwitz. There's no, no, no they're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no, let's celebrate 
concentration camp culture like there is with plantation culture in yeah. the South. You know, isn't it? I my first visit to to a concentration camp was uh, my first visit to Germany in uh, in 80, 1983. and I went to Dachau, and it was oh, a yeah. sweltering hot day. It's about I guess six miles outside of uh, uh, Munich. Yeah, uh, and I I was taken with every picture of Hitler. The face had been scratched out by people's nails. I mean, yeah. the visceral effect that that had. I was curious, I'd never been back to Dachau, but I often thought, you know, were they replaced or what would what transpire with that? Any, any uh, photograph of Nazis or Hitler were literally scratched out by the visitors at Dachau. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, getting back to, to Dred Scott though, you know, don't you find it ironic that the, 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 the guy's family owned the plantation that employed slaves, and when he inherited, when Ro Roger Tony inherited it from his father, he freed his own slaves. Yet he wasn't willing to unmask free slaves. Interesting. It was interesting. I mean, a, a big, uh, you know, dichotomy. Not only wasn't willing on mass to free slaves, he intentionally well, dehumanized them. In the Red Scott case to say that nobody can unmask free yeah. slaves. And another important thing to remember, and it wasn't like Tony was using past precedent to um, justify his decision because there had been many cases before that where slaves had been brought to free territories and they received their freedom. I mean, it goes back to, I think there was some case in 1824 where somebody was living in Illinois or something and they received their freedom. And this was actually when um, Dred Scott and his wife, I think her name was Harriet. Harriet uh, yeah, okay. Um, sued. For their freedom, everyone thought it was a slam dunk that they would just get their freedom because it had happened so many times earlier. I mean, it went to, and I was in, the, I was actually in the courtroom in uh, St. Louis where the original Dred Scott decision was um, heard. I also visited the grave of Dred Scott, which is also just outside St. Louis. Um, so there were many, many cases where this was considered: if you had gone to a free state, you received your freedom. And they just expected it. And then somehow it just didn't work that way. And it, it was more than a few lawsuits. I mean, I thought it was like, I remember originally thinking it was just like three, one court, Missouri Supreme Court, and then the United States Supreme Court. But apparently there was like numerous other trials in between. Um, but eventually when it gets to the Supreme Court, uh, Tony just kind of reversed previous precedent to make this decision it wasn't something like well he was just you know following precedent that had gone on he actually went against it because so many former slaves had received their freedom once they traveled to a free state right this so, this was his attempt to settle the slavery question that was tearing yeah, that, the country apart yeah. entirely in the pro-slavery direction and say right. okay we're done we did it this question yes. is solved and settled um, that was his whole fact he ignored whole precedent so much that he said you know, for over 100 years, even before the Constitution, Black people were treated and seen as inferior in this country. And he uses that as his legal logic, which is not legal logic, right. that's anecdotal. But it's not even true, because even in some Southern states, North Carolina, for example, Black people even had the right to vote if they owned property up until a certain point in, a, in yeah. American history. So he just completely ignores um, <laughs> the reality of the situation in the past. Right. Leo, I want to throw to you one last, because I don't want to keep you too long on a Sunday morning. 
It's not next Sunday where you're going to be very busy, I know, as a Philadelphia <laughs> yeah, that's right. person. Um, no birds, no birds. There is another Philadelphian that I know you're very interested in that probably doesn't get the credit they deserve in history, and that's George Meade. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. Give you a moment to talk about George Mead. Well, I wanted to. Yeah, let me give let me give a shout out to the George Mead Society, which also donated some money for that tombstone for Carolyn LeCount. And they were really excited to hear about this. There's a, a group of um, historical activists really in Philadelphia that try to keep the name of George Mead alive. And every New Year's Eve, which is his birthday, uh, December 31st. They have a 21-gun salute and present wreaths at his gravesite at Laurel Hill Cemetery, which is probably our most historic cemetery. So, um, yeah, no, we're I'm a big General Meade fan. Of so course, people out there who might not know, General Meade took over the command of the Union Army of the Potomac just three days before the Battle of Gettysburg, led it through the Battle of Gettysburg to victory, and led the army for the rest of the war. That often gets forgotten. We think of Grant yeah. coming east and takes command of the army, but he doesn't really. George Meade is the commander of the Army of the Potomac for the remainder of the Civil War, and yet yeah. things happen. He's not even present at Appomattox. There's you know 50 people in the room with General Grant at Appomattox. George Meade is not one of them, mm -hmm. um, and he gets very overlooked. And, and why do we not have more memory of George Meade? He beat Robert E. Lee, going back to what Frank said about Ulysses Grant earlier. He was the first one to really beat Robert E. Lee. It's a, an annoying cultural thing, too, is that we have this absolutely beautiful equestrian statue of George Meade, which is out hidden in Fairmount Park behind Memorial Hall. And it would have been, I guess, something that people noticed more like back when the Centennial was out there. But now it's just by this like city pool and nobody really knows who this guy is on a horse. And then much to our chagrin, there's this beautiful equestrian statue of George McClellan, who was also born in Philadelphia, outside of our city hall. <laughs> you couldn't hear that on the audience. Yeah. Frank just yeah. audibly groaned, because yeah. we've talked about George McClellan before on this podcast, um, who we elected governor here in New Jersey. So oh, this, well, yeah. this group wanted to move them. They wanted to move the Mead statue and by the way, to be totally badass, I hope I can say that word on your podcast, but they, um, that statue of George Meade is made from melted down Confederate cannons. Oh, so uh -huh. they, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> much. Yeah, uh, but they wanted to move him to City Hall and there's just the money and the whole, like, as you can see, it's hard to get the street renamed. Uh, so getting that, getting that to happen, I think was a bridge too far for at least for now. Well, you mentioned William Still earlier, who kept the records of the Underground Railroad and people successfully fleeing to freedom. There is a William Still and George Meade connection here in New Jersey, which is George Meade was the chief engineer building the Cape May Lighthouse mm. before the Civil War. And William Still, a number of times in his records, talks about people fleeing, especially the eastern shore of Maryland and Delaware, that that, that light from the lighthouse was assigned to them that they were coming up to the land of freedom to to the north so george meade is one who built that lighthouse that william still mentions a number of times in his records there there is something that's strange about the politics of people that are civil war nerds like us which is that i think a lot of them are very quick to dismiss 
um, the Union commanders that are not you even Ulysses S. Grant, like you were saying a second ago, like like there's this very strange. I guess it's a lost the ones that weren't prominently featured by uh, the movie Gettysburg. Yeah, or like the Shelby. Suddenly, suddenly Chamberlain won the Civil War. Exactly. Exactly. What's George Meade's role in the whole four and a half movie hour movie of Gettysburg? (laughs) Is he shows up in the dark and says, "Is this a good place to fight?" Yeah, yeah. I hope it is. And that's his whole role in a four and a half hour movie. It's crazy to me that that's what we picked up because obviously there were so there was so much politics going on in the Army of the Potomac. I mean, they were fighting everyone who was an officer in the Army of the Potomac wasn't just fighting Confederates; they were also fighting each other. And um, I think that people, it's a shame because the the nerds have divided and only talked about the military history stuff and the pop culture of who was actually good or bad. And I feel like they've overlooked a lot of people that made real sacrifices for our country, like George Meade. And George Meade didn't have to go enlist at all. George Meade was grievously injured during the war, was shot, and didn't have to return. You know, seven days, correct? Yeah, exactly. Like, and and then he died young, uh, which almost certainly was a direct result of... um, the injuries that he had in the civil war. So, I mean, he survived the war, but uh, the guy really did sacrifice for the country. He didn't really had a silver spoon. He didn't have to do that. He also, I think gets a bad rap for strategy in general and what he was actually trying to do. I know that the one George Meade controversy that I'd like to look more into is exactly what happened at the crater because oftentimes right. he gets blamed. Mm-hmm. Um which I don't know all the details. I feel I, like I, I read been, about it, and I was at yeah. the crater, and they, they don't really know. Mead is kind of given, um, you know, like he knew he was the one who had the original plan that was changed politically changed mm-hmm. above him. So Mead, um, you know, I, I think Mead, and I agree with you that Mead does get the short end of the stick. Um, you know, you know, at that point, he had a very awkward relationship with Ambrose Burnside, who was commanding mm-hmm. the Ninth Corps, because Burnside yeah. technically outranked him. But also to get back to, you know, you're actually correct about the uh, the Civil War nerds. I I had a a man I knew who was a real Civil War historian. His son was a reenactor. They used to go to all these reenactments. His wife was involved and he just had nothing good to say about Meade. You know, some of the things he actually said, I I looked into it and were totally even wrong. It was just like there's this rumor about Meade. And, and, um, you know, by the way, as, as a, as a, Philadelphian myself I was actually born there oh great uh, yeah I left when I was five though or four but um an opposite yeah, of a Ben Franklin yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, you know he went to Boston about, <laughs> yeah. well yeah the more I read about Mead and I, I realized that you know he was he doesn't get anywhere near the credit he deserves mm-hmm. he's like the um the uh the Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was thinking yeah. um the Longstreet of the North, um, but of course that's a different situation where Longstreet doesn't get any credit because they're trying to destroy his reputation since he became a Republican and spoke out against um, uh, the, the Lost Cause whole thing. But um, yeah, Mead. I don't know why Mead? I guess it's you know why why do you think Mead is just coming back maybe, to what maybe Joe's Le- right coming about back the- a little bit to what Leo said that uh, you know all of us Civil War nerds, even those who us who root for the North, which seems to be 
a minority of Civil War nerds. Yeah. Um, yeah. That we dismiss friend, what the Northern generals did. Right. If the Northern Union wins a battle, we say it's because the South messed up, because that Braxton Bragg was a bad general, that this happened or that's happened. But if the South wins the battle, we talk about the brilliance of yeah. know, Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson. In a way, we right. kind of buy into the lost cause narrative that to the small winning things is only because they have more men or anything. Right. I don't. I, I don't. Completely buy dismissed the the personalities of the North that led yeah. them to victory. Yeah. I, I think there's a reason for that. I think that the. I, I honestly believe that the Confederate generals, you know, have more skin in the game. Look. Look what they what they did with their their careers. They hitched it on the Confederacy, plain and simple. Uh, and even though, you know, if you look at it from a, a, a purely objective point of view, uh, you, they had everything going against them. But the truth of the matter is, sadly, that the intersection of politics and the military, you know, led to too many incompetent, you know, strategists uh, regarding the Union generals. It, it, sometimes I think it's amazing that the Union actually won the war, you know, in spite of itself. You know what? Fortunately, you know, right one out. I mean, well, here in New Jersey, we have our own who is not getting the respect. In my opinion, going back to monuments, Phil Carney. Hmm. Uh, Phil yep. Carney is like you said about George Meade. He had no reason he had to get involved in the Civil War. He was actually overseas at the time. He was a very wealthy man. He was from a millionaire family, um, but came and joined the Union cause and fought very well early in the war. He was a very celebrated soldier and wound up getting killed just after the Battle of Second Manassas. Yeah. Um, his statue is one of the two that New Jersey has currently in Sat Satuary Hall hmm. in the Capitol building. It's currently scheduled to be removed to replace it with Alice Paul. And there's oh. nothing wrong with putting a statue of Alice Paul. That's not yeah. my complaint. Okay. But there is an element where it seems to be dishonoring Carney to have him be the one removed to put Alice Paul in. And people are going to see it as, this is what I'm worried about, it's another Civil War general we're tearing down the statue of. And it's not somebody who had any kind of problematic element to his record. Um, but, you know, Richard Stockton is our other statue. He could be removed. Yeah. He was the one signer of the Declaration of Independence who reneged on the Declaration of Independence by the end of the Revolutionary War uh, and said, okay. I take it back. Yeah. <laughs> We're keeping well, him. Me, we're taking out Phil Carney. One other person, um, a New Jerseyan by the name of John McLean. He was the other dissenter on the Dred Scott case. Oh. I looked it up. There you go. <laughs> Did not know John that. McLean was born in Morris County. <laughs> he did move. I think he was in Ohio or something when he eventually. Yeah, that makes more sense. One of the many, he was like, you know. He wasn't like, in McClellan country anymore. No, right, no. We are coming up on our, our hour. I know this is a Sunday morning. I woke you up early, all of you, to oh, take part in this. Far. But I want to go around and just kind of get everybody's last thoughts on any of the topics that we talked about, whether it's the the, the Roger Tawney issue, um, you know, George Meade, or anybody else that we've talked about. What are people's last thoughts? Uh, Bill, I'll go to you first, and we'll go around. Well, I, I uh, have to say, I just want to commend Leo. I think he's doing great work in terms of, uh, uh, of, of Tony and, and getting that street renamed and also educating uh, the kids in his high school with regard to this and other civic issues. I think that's something that's somewhat lacking um, 
you know, in the, the teaching of history, I'm not going to say at either of our schools, but, uh, you know, kids do not learn civics to a certain degree and how in history influences it. And uh, they, they need to do that because there's a, a, a void when it comes to their consciousness with regard to this. Oh, thank you very much. Frank, your last thoughts? Um, all right. Let's take down the statues of Tony and rename the streets and let's put up George Mead statues and <laughs> Tony Street to Mead Street. I'm all for that. You know, I think is there a Mead Street in Philadelphia? Um, oh. I don't think there is actually. <laughs> I mean, there is a marker, there's a statue, but I don't recall there being a Mead Street. I'm not sure if we have one in Jersey City either, because we have a lot of streets named for generals. He, you know what? Yeah, there's no, there's no. Even Henry Halleck has a street named after him that I take every day. To get oh, my God. Well, he's <laughs> the one that actually won the Civil War, Joe. That's the yeah, book. Uh, anybody listening out there, there's an inside joke that Leo, me, and my other friend Chris have that we're going to write a book about Henry Halleck, how he really was the, the, the genius of the Civil War. There's Civil a meat street oh. in West Orange. Okay, there we go. I wonder if, oh, I don't know if that's place. I would, yeah, the city of Orange in West Orange does have a meat. Um, okay. I think it all depends on when the streets were like. I always laugh. Well, I talk about that with monuments too, even Confederate monuments. When did they go up? I think that right. I always laugh. Like we see a lot of like um, one of our coworkers, um, Jim Falconer, has uh, sons who go to a school in Kinelon named after Warren G. Harding, probably our one of our. If not our well, I wouldn't say our worst president. I saved that for Andrew Bottom John. five. But he's just he's bad because he did nothing and didn't want to do anything. He just was lucky that you know there was no civil war pending. Well, he's lucky um, that he died before all the scandals came out right. about him. Frank, why, there's a Harding Township too. I mean, I don't know, you know, that's that's uh it's it's in Morris County. Uh, I'm not sure if that's named after Warren Harding. I, I don't know. Oh no, it is. Oh, it is? Is. Okay. It's actually the Warren Harding School. It's because if you look at it, you see when the school was built it was 1920. Harding was president. A lot of grammar schools, uh, there's one here in Bayonne named after Woodrow Wilson. It was built in 18, I saw this thing, 1918. A lot of grammar schools, public grammar schools were built in the early um, 1900s. So a lot of them got the names of the current president, either Wilson, Harding, um to it so it was kind of interesting um that's so that's probably part of the reason why you have these is when the school was built yeah or streets were put down jersey city most of the streets were pretty much done by before the civil war so there were a lot of them green street um gates avenue washington street we're all named after um Revolutionary War generals. Right. Montgomery Street goes right by our school for this first. We're actually yeah. between, which I would think our school is between Montgomery Street and uh, Warren Street, two uh, American revolutionary generals who died in the war. So, and then we have Tour Street behind us, who is named after, well, Ooh, in the home there at the time of the Revolutionary War. So. Yeah, she was, you know, she's considered a heroine, but she really didn't do anything um, <laughs> or did, did very, very little. But, uh, but there's a street named after, that's cool. So we're actually on three sides. We have streets named after Revolutionary War people. And Baron DeKalb Street is just a block away. Um, yes. We go down the hill, so yeah. another one who died in the war. And Leo, yeah. your last thoughts. First of all, thank you for coming on Wigs for Wigs. We might have to have you on again to talk about Civil War nerddom. 
Oh, oh I'd love to. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. If you want to talk any uh, Civil War debate, I'd love to do that. I have a direct quote from Carolyn LeCount in 1873 and uh she was still arguing she was seemingly a very feisty lady and someone that um was always looking to further civil rights in the united states and i love this quote because in two sentences i think she encapsulates what her main perspective was and she said to be intelligent is to understand the laws of the land and the great feature of our laws is that they make no distinction by reason of color to produce so grand a result, which the truly intelligent can comprehend, has cost our nation thousands of lives and millions of money, and we laugh to scorn this attempt to repudiate the sacrifices and sufferings of true Americans. And I think uh, that was from 1873. I think that that says everything about an educator's perspective, a Black woman's perspective in the North, a Reconstruction perspective about what the Civil War was actually about. It was to declare that this country is a place of equality. It was to declare that race should not make you a second-class citizen, and that everyone is a citizen in the United States. And it also emphasizes the importance of education. And as someone that educated thousands of students, uh, I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind for Carolyn LeCount. So yeah, thank you for having me on. Amen. Amen. I think that's a great way for us to end is with that quote from Carolyn LeCount and your little sum summary of it. Um, so thank you again so much, Leo and, and Bill and Frank for coming on today, waking up early on a Sunday morning to do this. Uh, audience out there, as always, we can be reached with your thoughts. If you have any questions for any of us or just follow up thoughts on these topics we've talked about, we can be reached as always at wigs for wigs that is W-I-G-S-F-O-R-W-H-I-G-S at gmail.com. We always love to hear from you. We could share your thoughts on a future episode. Maybe Leo will come back and we can arrange it. Um, and we'll see you again very soon on another episode here of Wigs for Wigs. Take care, everybody. Thank you.